All right, if you would go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you that you, uh, by your Spirit, inspired the author to pen these words to help us focus on the work of Christ in such a magnificent way in a passage filled with all of the blessings, many of the blessings, rather, that you have extended to us in Christ. And I pray that this morning we would be able to sit in awe of what you have done and that our appreciation of those great things would be enough to conquer what troubles us and the trials we face. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. So if you were here with us last week or if you have listened to the message online um, you'll remember that the main point was focusing on Jesus as our champion. And what we looked at is how Jesus went out and fought or engaged in a conflict on our behalf and arose victorious. And what I I tried to communicate is that the purpose of this language in the text is to help us sit back and appreciate the glory of his victory before or at least in addition to putting ourselves into the story that we would not think of the glory of Christ and the glory of what he has done merely in the context of how it benefits us and that's an extremely important focus to have in your growth as a believer if you only love Christ because of what He can offer you, if you only looked forward to heaven because it's not the bad place and it appears really great, then you've missed the point. The point of following Christ, the point of desiring to go to heaven, should be, in the main, Christ-centered. The reason we should want to go to heaven is so that we might worship Him for the magnificence of His victory for all eternity. The reason we should want to follow him is because he is such a glorious savior. He has done great 
things. This is, and I didn't mention this story last week, but this is essentially what the parable of the feast and the master is about. Do you remember? The master of the feast sends out invitations to all these people to come and celebrate his son's wedding, essentially. And they all say, well, I've got this property I bought. I I just got married myself. I've got all these things going on. I can't come. And then he says to his servants, then go out to the highways and byways and pull people in, essentially grab them, accost them and bring them into the feast because the feast for my son will be full. This is God's motive. The, The foundational motive of bringing people in is because Jesus deserves to be worshiped. And so now we come to this text. Where I want your heart to sit is is a phrase from one of my favorite hymns. And it it goes this way. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. That's where I want your heart to be. That's where we should try to leave our hearts, where we are stunned by the fact that that God would extend to us the blessing that Christ deserved, that we would gain in some way from the reward that is due to Christ. That should stun you. That should stun me. We should be speechless that we should gain from His reward. There is a dangerous strand in popular Christian theology, and that is that God had to save us or he had to provide a way of salvation it goes like this well god is all loving so he had to do everything he could in love to save us or god is merciful so he had to send jesus so that he could show mercy or god is just and fair so he had to offer a way of salvation to everyone god would still be perfectly loving perfectly merciful perfectly just and fair to save none of us And until you can come to that place in your heart, you cannot fully appreciate what He has, in fact, done for you. Unless you can see and feel and appreciate and love the fact that everything He's done for you is completely undeserved and completely non-obligatory on His part, you will cut yourself off from most of the joy that's available to you in Christ. He could have wiped us all out like he said to Moses. And he could have started the whole thing over and show grace and mercy to that new people. But in his ultimate and pure freedom, he decides, no, I will show mercy to you. And so we come to this text. And what we're going to be talking about today is the blessings that Jesus blesses his people with. In this passage, there are at least 12 different blessings that Jesus blesses his people with. And we'll try to spend some time on each of them, trying to highlight how it is, in fact, that Jesus Christ's reward as our champion, the great victory that he has won, benefits you and me, benefits his people, benefits those who call him Lord. But before we get there, and that's that's why I spent our beginning moments talking about this, you must believe and you must feel that all of these blessings are undeserved. So here is the gain for you 
O Christian, from his reward. The author begins, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember, we talked about the parable that Jesus gives in Luke. He's answering the Pharisees and he says, here's kind of what I came to do. There's a strong man who has his house and his possessions and his armor and he's he's guarding all of his treasure trove of stuff. But then a stronger man comes, binds him and takes all his stuff. That's essentially what Jesus came to do. And that's that's a parable he uses to communicate what he's about. There's a strong man and we're subject to lifelong slavery to this dark-robed Lord of the dead who's been given the power of death over us, and Jesus fights on our behalf and delivers us from that evil tyrant. So the first blessing is that we're delivered from the fear of death. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what does the author mean by the fear of death. When you witness death, when you're close to death, it is impossible to feel that it's all right in the world. You know that something's not right about that. And this is one of the reasons why I just reject every other worldview out there. Because for most every other worldview, death is just a natural, some would even say beautiful part of existence. And having been around death, if you have, you know that that simply is not the case. Something's wrong. It shouldn't be this way. There's an uneasiness that anyone and everyone feels who has any honest take on what death is and the consequences of that moment entail. It's not right. It's not beautiful. It's not pretty. The fear of death that we have, that the Spirit of God has put into us, is that deep down we know that it's what we deserve. Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them, Paul says. We know, we sense that this is what we deserve. And that brings an uneasiness. Kind of carries the sense that there's punishment or judgment or consequence coming at some point. We don't know when it is, but it will happen at some point in the future. It's like when your mom growing up tells you, you'll have to wait until dad gets home. That ruins your whole day, right? It's almost worse because you know at some point there is consequence. There is punishment. There is judgment coming. We know and we feel that we can't outrun judgment. You might extend your life. You can eat all the blueberries you want. You can have a great exercise regimen. You can be really healthy. You can avoid unnecessary risk. But eventually, it'll come to an end. 
eventually you will die. And that's uncomfortable. It makes me uneasy even to say it, but it's true. So after saying all that, you could appropriately ask the question, and we will, how is the Christian freed from this fear of death? This is the first blessing that he mentions. He's delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So in answer to that question, let's ask another question. Do Christians get to skip out on death? I thought Jesus tasted death for everyone. No. Sadly, we all still have to die. It is appointed to man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And that is a sober reminder every day of what sin does and how much loss and damage there is as a result of sin. There is real damage. There is real loss. And you and I, we do have to face that final enemy. And in a sense, we will lose. But that's not the full story. Through trust in Christ, we do not follow our first father, Adam, in a death like his. We follow Christ in a death like his, which leads to resurrection. You could really read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to get a lot of clarity surrounding this. We'll just look at a few verses if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll pick it up in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, referring to Adam, by a man, referring to Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And then let's look at verse 53 through 57. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason the Christian still dies is because this mortal form must put on immortality. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. It is not fitting that a son, a daughter of God, should continue to wear this moth-eaten form. This frail, broken body that ages and breaks. For the Christian, death is a deliverance 
from this mortal and perishable form. We put on immortality and it is swallowed up in life. This is how he delivers you from the fear of death. It is still not pretty. It is still unpleasant. But the reason we must face that final enemy is he is no longer used as a rod of judgment. But even the enemy who wields the power of death has been subjected to you, Christian. And when that time comes, that is when God delivers you from this mortal form and this perishable body and you enter immortality and the imperishable. The second blessing. He has delivered us from the consequent slavery. Through fear of death, we were imprisoned, according to this text, to lifelong slavery. You might ask, slavery? I'm not a slave of anyone. What kind of slavery is he talking about? And here I would just point you to Romans chapter 6. Verses 16 through 20. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to, to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And he goes on. Another passage to go to, because it's so easy to run to Paul to explain everything, especially um, in our context. But let's look at John chapter 8. This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of the time. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we'll come back to this passage in a little bit to help us understand another section. Through sin and the fear of death, which the power of death is, or the sting of death is sin, we were under a kind of slavery. Death is what gives teeth 
to the consequences of sin. And the fear of death also leads to more sin because living life based on fear of death is not faith in God. And so we become even more and more self-centered through fear, leading to hatred of God. This is an ever-deepening cycle of madness. Christ, in giving us a totally different reason for death, that we follow Him in His resurrection to put on immortality, liberates us from this slavery. So that's the second blessing. We've been delivered from the consequent slavery. Blessing number three. We've been delivered from the enemy's dark domain. Paul says in Colossians 1, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness and transferred us in to the kingdom of his marvelous light. And this is a binary truth for every person you meet. Your neighbor, your children, your co-workers, those under your care. Everyone is either under the domain of darkness, under this dark, evil, cruel tyrant, or in the kingdom of His marvelous light ruled by His Son. And if you can just see the world this way, it will transform your entire life. There's no middle ground. There's no waiting, staging area to be in one or the other. This is the case for every person you meet, in one or the other. So that's where we were. Paul says in Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions of our flesh, but no longer. He's delivered us from this dark domain. So that's the third blessing. We'll move to the next passage. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So those of you who have been with us the entire time might be saying again, not, he better not with angels again. We spent enough time on angels in this study if you read through chapters 1 and 2. But here the author is bringing them back in the discussion again for you to remember and to think on the glory of the angels or who are called the sons of God, or the glorious ones, the armies of God even, who dwell in a sense in the presence of God and minister to God or serve Him in His very courtrooms, His throne room. So just imagine that kind of existence, worshiping Him, in some sense perceiving His glory sitting on the throne. We get glimpses of it in the revelation to John of what that kind of looks like. And we long to be there as Christians. We long to be able to join that throng worshiping around the throne. So the angels are there. In a sense, preparing that rhythm that we'll exist in. And the author here says, yeah, but he doesn't help them. He helps you. So all of the grace and all of the joy and all of the blessings that God extends to the angelic beings, the author looks at that and says, yeah, but that's not 
that's, that's nothing compared to what He does for you. This word helps is actually takes hold of. Right? So He, so he doesn't take hold of, or, or another way of saying it would be takes the hand of. He doesn't take the hand of the angels and lead them through trial and tribulation. But He helps the offspring of Abraham. This is how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 41.13, For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Angels long to look or to see or to experience or worship in light of what He has done for you and me. His attention and His care and His gentle leadership rests on you brother and sister, and no one else. Blessing number five. We are called the offspring of Abraham. This is why I wanted to bring in John chapter 8. This is somewhat controversial nowadays. I'll reread some of the verses we looked at in John. So Jesus said to the Jews, the Jews, physical, real descendants of Abraham. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So so if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know you're physical descendants of Abraham. You can trace your lineage back to Abraham if you wanted to, if you were put on the spot. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen because my father, because I've seen it with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's talking about Abraham here. What father is he referring to? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, his true descendants, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But you now seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, and they're probably saying that to accuse Jesus of that very thing. right? Because Jesus was born of a virgin, so they said, well, we're not like you, born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came to, from God and I am here. Not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear, bear to hear my word. And here's where he drops the hammer. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So he looks at Jews, real 
physical descendants of Abraham and basically says, because you don't embrace me, because you don't do the works of Abraham, who saw my day and rejoiced, according to John, because that's not what you're doing now. You show that you're not the true descendants of Abraham. You don't share in his faith. Yes, you may be able to trace your physical lineage back to him, but you're not his true descendants. You're of your father, the devil. And here when he says he helps the offspring of Abraham, he clearly is speaking of those who follow Jesus. You are called the offspring of Abraham. Those who share in the faith of Abraham. And all of the blessings that God extended to Abraham. The true people of God have always been those who shared in the faith of Abraham. And all that has been made yours because Christ has made you His own. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. This is an interlude or a reminder or an intensification of what we've talked about in the last several weeks. Jesus goes through every trial and every difficulty, every challenge, so that He can confidently say and look you in the eye and say, brother, sister. He has a solidarity or a oneness with the human family. He shared in flesh and blood. He was made like His brothers in every respect. The author clarifies later that he does not mean that he had a sin nature. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And Basically what he's saying is every challenge or difficulty or pain or struggle that you have had to face, Jesus has tasted that and taken that on Himself, primarily or ultimately expressed in His willingness to take on death for you. Just as a very brief aside, I've I've talked about this multiple times here. So Jesus, not because of His omniscience, but because of His taking on humanity, can look at every single one of us and be a sympathetic high priest. And he was made like us in every respect. So he was a first century, 30-year-old Jewish man who didn't marry and didn't have children. And yet, because he took on humanity, he's able to look at each one of us and be an empathetic or sympathetic high priest. Not because of his omniscience. Not because he knows all things. But because he took on humanity. And so just be careful rejecting or not accepting help or encouragement from a person who hasn't experienced the same things you have. Because if we're just looking at the actual life story of Jesus, He hasn't experienced exactly the same things you have. And vice versa. But because He was human and suffered and dealt with the difficulty, the pain, and ultimately face death, He can empathize with you, sympathize with you, encourage you. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This is the sixth blessing. Jesus is our high priest. And when we hear that, it's very difficult for us to appreciate the significance of that. Priest? I mean, okay. It's like when we discussed him being our king. That's not something we as Americans have had for a long time. So when you hear that Jesus is your king, it's kind of like, okay. Jesus being our priest? What does that mean? Do I need a priest? You know, what, what does this even mean? This is so significant and so joy-giving that Jesus is our high priest that I would spend multiple messages just on this idea, but the author of Hebrews gets to that in further chapters and we'll spend probably the equivalent of 10 to 20 weeks on this idea of Jesus being our high priest. So I won't go into too much detail here. But the idea here for today is at least that He is your intermediary. We are dealing with a God, a being that no man can approach at all. No man can see the face of God and live. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at His right hand has made Him known. God has such purity of holiness that it is said that He dwells in unapproachable light. And Jesus, in taking on flesh, serves as an intermediary. And since He is God Himself, it is not like it's a junior varsity version of deity. God Himself works as the intermediary between the full-blown glory of God and us Himself. And even in that service, it shows His glory so much more. Jesus is our High Priest. And here are two ways to walk away from this for encouragement for you. There's a deep encouragement and also a severe warning. Jesus perfectly intercedes for us to God. And He continues forever as our High Priest. This One who tasted death for you and all the suffering and all the inconveniences of human life, He suffered all that for you and He is the One who represents your case before God. It's not some man or some committee. It's not some lawyer you have to pay so that He has a beneficial view of you. It's Jesus who represents you to God. And second, Jesus is our high priest and there is no other way to God. No one else. No teacher, no preacher, no angel, nor mentor, and no self can be your intermediary to God. Only Christ. This is why the Gospels and the teachings of the Apostles are so important. Because that defines how God has sent the Mediator. And any other idea or teaching or theology that would tell you a different way to relate to God is dishonoring your high priest and saying that he's not enough for you. The seventh blessing, Jesus is a faithful high priest. Whenever we talk about people being in a position of authority over us, it can cause some fear or anxiety. Am I right? Sinful men and women ruling over sinful men and women. What could go wrong? Right? 
His being our brother and enduring the same things shows his character. He who is faithful unto death, he drank the cup of the wrath of God to fill his role. We can trust him. This isn't a position of authority that was just handed to him. This isn't a position of authority that he won in some vote. He drank the cup of the wrath of God to be a fitting and merciful high priest. You can trust his character. Also, he is a merciful high priest. This is blessing number eight. God is always merciful, but his mercy and empathy towards us as his people under his care It's intensified by his participation in human life and frailty. Even if someone in a position of authority over us, even if you would say, well, they kind of deserve that, they want it, or they're God's appointed leader on my behalf, or we really like them, there was always that question or that tinge of doubt in your mind, will they execute their authority over me properly? We have systems in our government to remove those who don't. So Jesus is your high priest forever. And it says here, he is a merciful high priest. And again, I wish I could have more time to spend on this. We'll get to it in a few weeks. God is not like a person testing your performance with a stopwatch. Use a little example right now. The NFL combine is going on and all these young men are going to try and score the right scores or or do the right things or jump as high as they possibly can, run as fast as they possibly can. And everyone's watching and timing them down to the hundredths of a second. Sixteenths of an inch make a difference. And some of us, when we think of God and how he relates to us in our performance, we see him like that guy sitting on the sidelines with a stopwatch. How's he going to do? Are his motives going to be pure? Is he going to dot every I, cross every T? He's a merciful high priest. That is not how God views you. When you look at his life and how he interacted with people, especially when you understand what was happening on the cross, We have every reason to be stunned by His mercy towards us. Come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm a merciful high priest. Blessing number nine. We have direct access to God. In the old way, If you were a Jew, you had to sell your stuff, turn it into money, or or take it if you were nearby and travel day after day. It may have taken you weeks to finally get to Jerusalem. And you had to wait your turn in line while you brought your offering. You may have waited days and days and days. And finally, you come to the altar and you present your sacrifice. And just for a few moments, the priest interacts with you and offers your sacrifice and then you're done. You get to talk to them. You ever try to meet with a really important person? It's on their schedule. Oh yeah, I've got an opening in six months. How much you need? 15 minutes? I don't know if I can do that. 
Jesus in being our high priest and being omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent. He gives us direct access to God because he himself is God. He's always available to you. He tore the veil. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Blessing number 10, Jesus makes propitiation for sins. And next week, we will spend our entire time together talking about this word because it is so important and it is under attack, it is unpopular, and it's uncomfortable to talk about propitiation. By the end of next week, hopefully we'll all have that added to our vocabulary and we'll understand what it means. The idea is that Jesus removes God's wrath from the equation. Our problem, brothers and sisters, is ultimately not death. It's not that in some sense we don't understand or we haven't been brought into alignment with God. It's that God, because of our sin, has wrath. Because He is holy, because He is pure, the appropriate response of a perfect, pure, holy God is wrath. The wrath of God is an extremely unpopular and uncomfortable topic. And it is so unpopular and, and uncomfortable to talk about that for many people the idea of Jesus removing the wrath for us still isn't enough. That they're so offended that Jesus, that, that God would have wrath towards us, that Jesus dying in our place isn't enough to remove that offense. But for you, brothers and sisters, hopefully when I tell you Jesus removed the wrath of God from the equation, you understand that this blessing is extremely significant. It is so severe and it is the ground of the gospel. We'll talk more about that next week. Blessing number 11. Jesus making propitiation removes the offense of our sins before God. You ever thought that Sure, Jesus has forgiven me, but man, God's probably really disappointed. The fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb means that there is nothing but love. And yes, He will discipline. Yes, He will bring you back into obedience. But it is out of love and approval and care towards you because now you are in Christ, His perfect servant. He has removed the offense, the stench, the shame of sin in the body of Christ being crushed in your place. And the fact that He walked out means that there's none left for you. Blessing number 12. Well, let me read this interlude again. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted... This is another interlude or reminder or intensification. Tempted here is not in the sense that we are tempted, right? We are tempted and we have a sin nature and so we're prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's not how Jesus interacted with temptation. The idea here is that Jesus suffered and he willingly put himself under the temptation of the enemy and the persecution of people and death. 
and you read the story of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he did himself no favors, no food, no drink for 40 days, and then the enemy comes to him, and he persevered. But he suffered and tempted. And because of that, here's the 12th and final blessing. He is able to help those who are being tempted. It's not just talking about tempted to sin, but it's also talking about, in a more broad sense, any difficulty or trial. So just in closing, how does Jesus today help me in these trials, in these temptations? He helps you through other people in your life. He helps you through strength that He supplies you. He has given the promise of sharing in His victory over trials. He gives us a mission and a purpose and a hopeful reason to endure the trials. If you would look at Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. That bruised reed, that faintly burning wick, that's you and me. The servant of God comes to reestablish justice on the earth. He is the king of all things. And he is coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. And that is a very cataclysmic, violent event if you read the Revelation to John. But for you, brother and sister in Christ, all of his work in the world, all of his transforming this planet to be an appropriate place for his kingdom, for us, the bruised reed, the smoldering flax, he doesn't treat that with violence. He's gentle with you and with me. This is how He helps us in our trials and temptations. He came and suffered the very same things. So that the promise for us is after we have suffered these light momentary afflictions, we are then prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That Your struggles, your trials, your hardships, your anxieties, that all of these now have meaning. The misconception about Christianity is that it's about getting your act right. The invitation has always been, like I said, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Trials will not cease. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this great 
truth, all of these great truths, these twelvefold blessings of being the people of God. I pray that those in this room who have not trusted you as their Savior would look at the astounding work of Christ and all of the blessings that He offers and understand that He has done this. He can be trusted. I pray that your spirit in the hearts of your sons and daughters in this room, that we would be stirred to have deep affection for you. And ultimately, that we would stand back after hearing all of these blessings and say, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And I pray these, pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.